And I remember look, being able to look out from my school desk window and see just like never ending corn. But you never saw the farmer. I never saw any person involved with all this giant corn that ended up in a silo. And so I think my very existence of doing this in a lot of ways isn't emulating a model so much as like showing that counter that this also is a farmer. Just waking up every day and being a Black woman who's a farmer is like that. You're listening to The Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty-gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Emma and Mary Kingsley, the mother-daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. So good morning, mom. How are you doing? Good morning, Emma. I'm doing well. Thank you so much. It is so springy today and has been for the past couple of days. And it's really fun because I have a sweet little backyard patio area that I love sitting in, especially right now before the bugs get bad. But you know, well, you know, I'm not the greenest thumb. I'm not the most into gardening, even though I have a very gardening adjacent podcast with my mother. I don't do all <laughs> of the things, but I feel like I'm ready to, to do something. So this is the year. So the backyard patio area has been planted over the years by various tenants. And at one point, even you planted stuff here. And so there's some pretty flowers dappled with a lot of brambly, scraggly things and then some green and just like it's generally nice, but it's very overgrown and it hasn't been very kempt. And I just really want to do something about it because I love sitting out there. But A, I don't know really where to start or what to do. I get overwhelmed with it easily. And B, the mosquitoes are so, so, so bad later in the summer. And sometimes it just makes me be like, even while well, I don't even want to go out there. So those are my two issues that I'm dealing with. Do you have any advice okay. for me? Yeah. Okay. So yes, I have an invitation for you or a challenge, whichever way you want to look at it. And it has to do with something new I'm embarking on this season, which I'm super excited about. Okay. So how about you just leave it alone or a certain area of it? It can even be a very small area, a square yard, three square yards, whatever you want. And you leave it alone and you just observe that. And if nothing else, just observe what happens and decide that you aren't going to try and control it in any way. You're just going to let it be. You're going to give it back, let it go. And then to take a step further, if you choose, you can intervene by removing things that are invasive and introducing plants that are native to the region that have some environmental benefits. And there's so many resources to tell you how to do all that. So especially if you're a person that, you know, you, you feel like you're not inclined towards gardening, like you said, and you don't know what to do, this is a real easy thing is to actually like just decide on a space where you're going to do nothing except observe. How about that? That sounds good, but I feel like that's what I've been doing. And I feel like it's not reaching its full potential. And I mean, I've been doing nothing. I've just been 
mm-hmm. leaving it. And what do you see in the space that you're doing nothing? What do you see? Can you can you speak to that? Like lots of dead scraggly things and then randomly some flowers will pop up. Okay. So have you identified the things, those brown scraggly things or things that appear to be weeds and identified what they are? I haven't identified anything. I mean, besides things I know. So there's a hydrangea bush. I know that there's some snowdrops that come up. I know mm-hmm. that there's a holly tree, but I don't know what the, the dead scraggly things are. You start there. Okay. Right, the things that you can see and you can't identify, like you said, a hydrangea. Mm-hmm. There are native hydrangeas and they're ornamental hydrangeas. Look it up and see which one you have. Look up anything you can and try to figure out where you can switch them out to more native things because the native things are going to encourage the return of life to that spot. So, okay, that sounds awesome. What about the mosquitoes? Do you have any ideas about that? Yes, I do. When you start restoring balance to your space, then the system can take care of itself. I'm not saying that your mosquitoes are going to disappear overnight because you're surrounded by a lot of imbalance, okay? Mm -hmm. But if you do what you can in your own small space, it at least moves you in that direction. And who knows, when you invite life forms back that belong in that space, you might have a bird or something else that eats mosquitoes and will have a really great time in your yard. Do you remember in Georgia when I was like the only one that wouldn't spray the lawn? Yeah. Even though it was required by the Homeowners Association to have a lawn service. But I would just never do it. And I got some phone calls and letters and stuff about it, but I never did do it. Okay. So about, you know, late spring, early summer every year, everybody around us would be inundated by Japanese beetles. And it was very common to see all around us in the neighborhood, these bags hanging from the trees. Yeah, I remember those. And there'd be stakes in the ground, too, with like little plastic bags. And the Japanese beetles would crawl in. And then you just have like bags of Japanese beetle corpses all over your yard. Right. Well, guess what? We didn't have Japanese beetles in our yard. And everybody would say, why don't you have Japanese beetles? I was asked that. And it makes sense to me that the birds would instinctively know they could come eat out of our lawn without being poisoned. Or there were things that remained in our lawn that weren't killed off that they would come and eat. Mm-hmm. And so the birds were in, in our yard and they would eat the Japanese beetles and we didn't have to have the little bags. So that's an example for you of um, when you allow life to return some of these imbalances that we perceive like mosquitoes and beetles and things like that can be resolved naturally by nature. I just had a light bulb moment a little bit because I think I'm getting overwhelmed with it in the same way that I get overwhelmed when I think, oh, I'd really like to paint this room. What color, what wallpaper would I like? You know what? And then I get overwhelmed because I'm thinking about me. (laughs) What do I want? But when you look at the garden and what I've been doing is what, what plants do I want? What do I want it to look like? But when you switch it and you say, okay, this isn't about me. What does the land want? What does this little spot need? What is here that shouldn't be here that I can take out and let other things breathe? That's really cool. That was a big light bulb moment for me, mom. Thank you. And back to your your initial advice of don't do anything and observe. (laughs) That's really cool. But you know how bad the mosquitoes are in the city. And we're just like so close to our neighbors. And obviously it's worth trying. To your point, the mosquitoes that are in Washington, D.C. 
that is an invasive species of mosquitoes. I forget what it's called exactly, but you can see it very specifically. It had stripes on it and it is relentless. And it, it does not limit itself to twilight either. They're out there all day. People that are real, really sensitive to mosquito bites literally can't sit outside. It's very bad. I'll give you that. <laughs> I mean, I'll try. It could be augmented by natural stuff. But, you know, in a patio in D.C., a citronella candle is not going to cut it. So No, but I invite you as, as I invite anybody out there. Try this designate something to let it go and determine that you're going to turn that little space or larger space or whatever you want over to nature this season. Just start with the intention. This is really a different way of thinking about gardening. I know this is a radical shift for a lot of people. So that's why I'm telling you as an invitation. Okay. That is really inspiring. Thank you, mom. And I also think that's a great preview for next week next week's episode with Mary Reynolds. We talked with her about these things, but even just a few weeks ago when we had the interview, I felt further away from spring and from my own space. And now I'm like in it and I just need a reminder of what to do. So do you want to give people a little heads up on what to look forward to next week? Oh, yes. This conversation is absolutely a preview. Mary Reynolds' book, We Are the Ark, has really impacted my approach to how I'll be interacting with my growing spaces this season. And I hope if this catches anyone's interest out there, that they'll tune in to hear more. It was really a fascinating conversation and it has shifted me in a really big way. So I'm excited. Yes. And thank you for tuning in this week and every week. And we look forward to you tuning in next week. And it helps us so much for you to share this podcast with a friend. Another great thing you can do is on Instagram under the weekly post of what the podcast is, you just tag a friend in the comments if you think that they would like that episode. It's another great way to share it. So we're really excited this week to introduce Gail Taylor of Three Part Harmony Farm. She is this week's guest, and this was such a cool conversation. Gail is a local farmer in Washington, D.C. Three Part Harmony Farm is right here in Northeast D.C., and it is a really cool place. They've got so many awesome things going on. It's a two-acre parcel in Northeast D.C., and has recently expanded to Brandywine, Maryland, so that they have more room to grow row crops and raise chickens. Their slogan and core principles are food as medicine, food as culture, food for our future. Yeah, and what's interesting about that, going back to Mary Reynolds for a moment, is that her message is also about the importance of breaking out of our dependence on the industrial food system. And that's accomplished by growing our own food, if possible, and seeking sources of food locally that regenerate the land around us and nourish us, not only as individuals, but the communities they serve as well. It is about cultivating a food system of your region. And this is an important part of the planetary healing that we're talking about this week, we're going to be talking about next week, and that we're going to be talking about a lot. So... Gail Taylor is also a member of the Black Dirt Farm Collective, which is a group of farmers, academics, builders, and food entrepreneurs who own 25-ish acres of land in Brandywine, Maryland. They are working with individuals and organizations that wish to reconnect with their roots as Afro-descendant agrarian people. The collective created a written curriculum as a companion guide to their signature Afroecology training program, 
which they use during their Afroecology encounters. So, so much to learn from Gail Taylor. She is doing the work. As she says, she's just a vegetable farmer. (laughs) But I think that there's a lot more there, so much there, and working with the soil and with her community. And she's truly a bright light. And we're so excited to share this conversation with you. Yeah, so here's Gail Taylor a three-part Harmony Farm. My name is Gail Taylor, and I own a diversified vegetable operation that's based in Washington, D.C., and it's called Three Part Harmony Farm. We grow mostly vegetables, but have also some herbs and flowers and a small nursery and supply our neighbors with CSA boxes for a regular like May to November season. Amazing. And how did you get started and how long have you been doing it and all that good stuff? The three-part Harmony Farm started in 2012, and it started after I had been working at an organic vegetable farm in Upper Marlboro for five and a half years and just got tired of the commute and had decided that after you graduate or whatever, you start your own operation, it was time for me to branch out and start my own farm. And since I had been living in D.C. since the late 90s, it was natural that I would start a a, a farm in the city that I live in. When I started the farm in 2012, there were not any other production farms in the city at that time. If anybody is familiar with D.C. and you've seen old-timey maps, you know that this city used to be just one big old cattle ranch and farm, especially north of Florida Avenue. And there's still today in the city, you can meet people who grew up in the city and remember walking past places where lots of vegetables were being grown and that kind of stuff. But in this century, that kind of thing had gone out of style. And what the city was known for at the time was a lot of urban garden projects, mostly school gardens. We have some very prominent, well-known nonprofit organizations in the city, including City Blossoms. The Washington Youth Garden is here at the Arboretum. We were very well known around the country for having developed a very robust curriculum around teaching kids gardening. But there wasn't anyone growing vegetables just for the sake of growing vegetables to sell them. And that's the only thing that I knew how to do. I had never gardened in my life, actually. And so it seemed like an obvious niche to fill. And I jumped right in. That's amazing. So you really paved the way because now there's a couple, there's a few urban farms that are and have strong CSAs and maybe more than a few even now. But that's so cool. You're a true like path finder. <laughs> yeah. So what had happened was when I took a year off actually between working at a farm and starting Three Part Harmony Farm because I wrote a business plan and scouted land. I needed to find a place to farm. But also I didn't know anybody here in DC. So I spent a good amount of time just cold calling all of these other organizations and asking if I could spend a morning volunteering with them and getting to know people. I went to Rooting DC, which is a pretty important place to meet folks in the city who were doing this kind of work, just so that I could get to know people in the community and introduce myself. And yeah, I guess I took it a little slow since I, like I said, I hadn't been growing anything in the city. I had never gardened in my life. And nobody else in the city was doing this kind of work at that time. So I needed to meet who my new peers would be. 
I'm curious about the land. How did you find the land and how big is it? And what was the state of the land when you started and how much rehabilitation did you have to do to start growing vegetables there? So the two acre parcel in Northeast DC where our main farm is located was part of an Excel spreadsheet that I made when I was scouting land and it was very high on the list of bull farms. I just looked into the property tax records to find out who owned the property and cold called the owners who happened to be an order of priests until they finally gave me a meeting. And then I I pitched them this idea that they would let me use this abandoned soccer field to grow vegetables on it. That's like the short version of the story because it took me three years to get a lease on the property. But I was familiar with the neighborhood because in the early 2000s, I had worked at a nonprofit organization that was across the street from where I farm now. And so I, my partner at the time still worked at that organization and he was on lunch break one day and said, I walked by this place that's not far from the office and you should find out who owns it. So it was just like that. People knew that I was looking for land and they would say, oh, there's this abandoned lot over here, or there's this place on the corner. And I just looked at everything that people threw at me until I found one that stuck. Wow. So it was an abandoned soccer field, you said, or a soccer field that was not in the use anymore, correct? Yeah, it wasn't like an official soccer field. It was so the priests who own the property, the missionary oblates of Mary Immaculate, they've owned the land for more than 100 years. They have a residence on site. So this land where I created the farm used to be like their sporting area. So in previous years, when young men would come to D.C. to do their training, to become oblate priests, they needed to do something during their weekends and lunch breaks. And so it wasn't just a soccer field. There's also like a baseball diamond and a basketball asphalt court where I now have a greenhouse. It was like a whole area where they would just recreate, but they moved the school to San Antonio. So by the time I approached them to make a farm on that location, they mainly were just paying landscapers to mow it. Ah, wow. And what was the state of the land and the soil? And what have you what did you have to do to going? Oh, yeah, that was your other question. Yeah, it was like a desert wasteland. This the pH was quite low. It was 4.5 when I tested it. And it really there were no earthworms. It was just this pale, terrible looking. I never thought dirt could look like that. And yeah, in the beginning, I remember I brought in compost and used those kitty litter buckets. Yeah. People, everything in the beginning we got was, it was just free. I just had the laundry buckets from Costco or these empty kitty litter buckets and filled them with compost and measured it out a little bit at a time in each bed. And then we planted in the bed and I didn't put compost anywhere else. God forbid we should drop a little bit of compost in the walkway. That was, that wasn't how we rolled back then. I just like slowly over the years hauled in enough compost to finally transform the soil to what it is now. Now it's like magic. Now just throw out the seeds and it grows. Oh, wow. That's so wonderful. It's just really cool to hear the resilience of all you need is a little, like all those, these plots of land need is just a little bit of love and care and Mm -hmm. taking care. And it's just amazing how things regenerate. I will say too, 
the one of the things that I did before I even asked for a lease was asked to do a soil test because I needed to make sure that there was no lead, lead in the soil yeah. or contaminants. Yeah, I'm an adult learned farmer and I only had those six seasons at an organic farm under my belt. And I had no idea what I would do if I found any kind of property that needed serious remediation. I didn't have the experience and I definitely didn't have the money. Okay. (laughs) So backing up just a little bit, you mentioned this was your first sort of, you're an adult learned farmer. So tell us about that sort of who were you pre-farmer and what got you into farming? Yeah. So I studied U.S. foreign policy in Latin America and had done an internship in DC my junior year of college. So I came here right after graduating and started working in the Latin America solidarity movement at the time. So I did a sort of like protest adjacent grassroots lobbying mix of those kinds of things. And mostly like on behalf of peace movement kind of organization, the anti-militarization was like my focus. So I did that for the first few years after college worked in my field. And then I took a break and decided to go do volunteer work in Guatemala in 2004. And then when I came back to the city in 2005, I decided that I wanted to change careers. I was super interested in figuring out how I could turn my former career into volunteer work and just to do a job that was just a job. I wanted to figure out how I could earn a paycheck to pay my bills and then do this other fulfilling thing for my life that wasn't connected to my livelihood, basically. So I started looking at jobs like answering the phone in a doctor's office or some, you know, I kind of just had this idea that I would just show up to work and then I would leave work and I would leave it behind and I wouldn't have to bring my work home with me. All those just kinds of like videos. farming. <laughs> yeah, this is where this is my quarter life, my quarter life crisis, I called it. I was in yeah. my mid 20s. But so one thing that happened when I came back from traveling is I had even less money than when I left. And so I had started volunteering at a couple of different places where I was earning food instead of money. I was working at a food, a worker-owned food co-op where I got store credit. And then I also had started volunteering at a farm in Upper Marlboro where I took home vegetables. And so this was just all like this turning point in my life. That's why I call it my quarter life crisis. I was just trying to figure out where I was going to land. So in the midst of sending out resumes and trying to figure out how I was going to pay my rent, the lady at the farm called me in December and she said, somebody on our crew is going to grad school and do you want her job? What? Okay, sure. (laughs) I have no idea what I'm doing. And I've just been volunteering once a week at your farm and now you're offering me a job, but okay. Yeah. And as they say, the rest is history. She is my mentor. She taught me everything that I know. She, three months later, she put me on a tractor and yeah, that's, I can't, now I can't remember what your question is. (laughs) That's just how you got into it. Yeah. And yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. I was, I was interested in becoming a more informed consumer, I guess you could Mm -hmm. say. When I was a teenager, I like dabbled in, in vegetarianism, just wanting to lead a more healthful lifestyle, seeing a lot of the telltale like food-related diseases in my family, especially a lot of my dad's side of the family, just like dying early ages of all of the kidney and diabetes and like all of the diseases, the heart disease, everything you get from eating bad food. So I just read something in a magazine one day about eating, being a vegetarian. And I came home and told my mom that I wasn't going to eat meat anymore. And 
she was like, that's great, but I'm only going to make one meal. So you can eat dinner or not eat dinner. That's up to you. And that kind of pushed my vegetarianism for a while, but somewhere, <laughs> go mom. Mind, I know <laughs> somewhere in the back of my mind, I always was obsessed with like how to be healthy, how to not end up like in my sixties in the grave, basically. I was unemployed and I had friends that worked at this farm and I got a ride with them and it just became like an entree into a new world. And it turns out I'm good with plants. It was like an, it was like a match that I never would have imagined. It's a very intuitive thing that just came naturally to me. Isn't that amazing? It is. And did this woman who became your mentor, did she, do you think she knew, like she saw that in you and she knew that? Or was it just totally per chance? Like, oh, this young woman's working for us. Maybe she wants a job or I don't know. Carrie, it's Carrie Vaughn is her name now. She's okay. the farm manager at the arts, which is actually an urban farm in DC too. It wasn't just me, like several of my peers around the same time that I worked at Claggett Farm left and started their own operations. There's just something about her personality that's incredibly like giving and supportive. She believes in you, even if you don't believe in yourself. It was her style of managing the vegetable operation that just bridged and allowed for all of this growth and possibility for basically mostly other women. Wow. She seems like an amazing person. That's that's amazing. That's a read regenerative relationship there where you're regenerating people and bringing their talents out and you're also bringing the best out of the land that was there. Was that an urban farm as well? No, Claggett is a 285 acre farm in Upper Marlboro. Claggett. Yeah. That's ringing a bell. Was that a bishop? There was a Bishop Claggett There is. Yeah. And there's a, what do they call it? Like a retreat center I've been to once. That's a different wing of the same family. Got it. Okay. So I want to talk about the land that became three-part Harmony Farm and how you, you went in there and you took a, what was once just a playing field and it was just grass, you said. It was really not being utilized for much of anything. It sounds like it was just being mowed, right? Yeah, they had a they have a landscaping contract with a company that just was mowing it, I don't know, once a month, twice a month. This is fascinating because there's a lot of land like this around the country that's just just grass, probably invasive grasses that is really not being utilized for any other thing other than just literally being mowed. And so Three Part Harmony Farm is a fantastic example of how you can take a piece of land like that two acres that's not a giant farm it's a relatively small piece of land so I want you to tell us all about how three-part harmony farm how it plays into creating a fair and equitable food system in the neighborhood and how it reaches beyond the environmental concerns in addressing racism and oppression in the food system. I created Three Part Harmony Farm so that I could get paid to do what I love most, right? Mm-hmm. Which is grow vegetables. And I wasn't under any illusion that this kind of work is lucrative. I would have been working for some hedge fund if I wanted to make a lot of money. So I think our impact is a lot smaller maybe than most people would hope for. Like in our neighborhood, 
we have a lot of customers who walk by the farm every day and see where their food comes from. Their kids go to school across the street and the kids can see, oh, that's my farmer and wave to me. We don't have a lot of interaction with people just coming in off the street. For one thing, I'm restricted in my lease that we can't have a lot of foot traffic on the property. And also, I frankly don't have time to give tours every week, even really every month to people who just walk by. So we're actually quite insulated and isolated from the outer community. I really was hoping just to be able to create a model that people could see like, oh, right now, after school every day, we have this school garden, but this is like something that you do as a hobby after school, like music or art class. But then when it's time to get a job, I go to school and I become a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. I wanted the kids to be able to see me as a reflection of, oh, actually, I could do that too. When I'm thinking about a kind of job that I have, I could grow vegetables. I don't know how successful I've successfully I've done that. It's quite difficult as to be a small farm owner. But that was my idea, was to create more than anything a model that people could emulate. That's so awesome. And did you have a model that you were going after? Were you using just your experience at Claggett Farm? Or did you do research going into it? Or were you really designing this thing from your brain and your heart? Oh, that's funny. I've never thought about it like that before. I think I wasn't... I was emulating the cookie cutter, small diversified vegetable operation that I was inundated with at that time. I was learning how to grow vegetables in 2006, 7, 8, 9, 10. There was like this mass momentum of everybody around us telling that we were losing farmers and it was going to be a huge food crisis. And if young people didn't get into this industry, then we were going to really be in trouble. And so a lot of us, we did our darndest. We went to every conference. We went to every workshop. We got our fingernails dirty. We learned how to grow food. And then we replicated this kind of model of half an acre, two acre, five acre, 10 acre, using the same tools, the same seeds, a lot of the same methodology that you see is pretty prevalent right now. So in that sense, I'm not that different than my peers who are doing this kind of work. But I think I also was trying to actually do a counter narrative. I was born in the Midwest. And so through elementary school, I went to a school in Illinois where there was a huge cornfield behind the school. And I remember being able to look out from my school desk window and see just like never ending corn. And we would always make jokes and say, don't go in there because you'll get stuck and you won't know how to get out. That's just like how much corn and how tall it was. But you never saw the farmer. I never saw any person involved with all this giant corn that ended up in a silo. And for somebody who was born in Iowa, this idea of this mythical person who's on a John Deere tractor and just like riding Mm -hmm. in his thousands of acres of soy and corn I never imagined that could be me as a farmer. And so I think my very existence of doing this in a lot of ways isn't emulating a model so much as like showing that counter that this also is a farmer. Just waking up every day and being a Black woman who's a farmer is like that. It's like 
recreating Old MacDonald's Farm, the old children's song that my kids grew up with. And when back when my kids were little, and I've said this on here before, we would sing the little song, Old MacDonald Had a Farm. And I would think, where is old McDonald? You don't see him anymore. And like, it was just like that had that literally disappeared from the American landscape. And and by that, you mean di- a diversified farm, a small, diversified small, farm. diversified farms where With multiple things. <laughs> and then on you add the layer on top of that of the racism that went into people of color losing their farms and their land. And I know that part of your mission there at Three Part Harmony Farm is to address that. Maybe talk about that, how that works into your model as well. Other than you've mentioned you're, you're a role model for the children. You're just, you're doing it. You're doing <laughs> you are it. it. Yeah. So anything else you want to say about that? And speak to, you use this term Afroecology. So tell us all about that. Yeah, that's a lot of questions all in one. Yeah. <laughs> So I wear a lot of hats. I own Three Part Harmony Farm. And for most of its existence, that means I've been growing vegetables in D.C. and trying to run a business in D.C. that is like difficult to do anywhere, much less a city like Washington. So it's a hustle, to be honest, like just keeping those gates open and being able to keep that business running is like a pretty significant level of investment of the last 11 years of my life. So that's all, that's all we do. We really, all we can do is grow vegetables for the people Mm -hmm. who buy them. That's, there's not really room for anything else. I also am a volunteer member of a collective called the Black Dirt Farm Collective. So all of my activism and work on that regard happens in my volunteer capacity in my off time. And it doesn't really have anything to do necessarily with the profit and loss statement of three-part harmony farm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But but it's something that I do on like Wednesday night and Sunday morning. Cool. My days off. (laughs) So yeah. So Black Dirt Farm Collective is a group of, we're I think 12 now folks who range from academics. We have three PhDs in the group, all black women. There's builders. We, We all do some farming or gardening. Some of us all the time and then others of us just some of the time. But we really came together more as a way to bring Black folks together to connect around the ideas of farming and agriculture and also as a way to learn together. And then later it became to teach other people where this all comes from, what our what our agrarian roots are. And just like when you think about where agriculture comes from, it literally comes from the African continent. And so first getting in touch with that, with our Afro-diasporic agriculture roots, but then also bringing the diaspora to the United States and how that fits into our connection to the land today. So the smarter people in the collective, not me, (laughs) developed a curriculum that we use to teach what we call Afroecology. And that just means all of those things, helping Black people in this country reconnect to those roots that have been severed, to connect to the land, to understand that it's importance. And then also one thing that's really important for us is like that political methodology, which means it's not just the work that you do, but it's how you do the work. So in organizing a weekend encounter, for example, everybody gets divided up into base camp groups, And you are meeting 
with that group throughout the entire weekend and acting out the work of making the encounter happen. You're participating in a new way of organizing ourselves as people in relation to each other, in relation to mother nature, and especially among the generations. And so we're learning something new, we're learning something old, but we're also just learning how to be with each other. Wow, that's amazing. Let me tell you about what it's like to drift to sleep on a 100% natural wool pillow sourced from regenerative farms wrapped in a lovingly handmade organic cotton pillowcase. Oh wait, I can't. I think it's just something you're gonna have to try for yourself. Holy Lamb Organics is proud to carry on a centuries-old tradition of making beautiful textile products by hand. Combining heritage methods with pristine natural and organic materials and sustainable business practices, they bring a dedication to healthy living and the environment. Everything Holy Lamb does reflects their devotion to the planet and its inhabitants. From their supply chain to their manufacturing processes to their facilities management, nothing happens without considering the environmental impact. Most importantly, they're also dedicated to fair labor practices, secure working conditions, diversity, and inclusion. From the farm to the mill to their partner manufacturers, everyone shares the same high ideals of a safe, respectful workplace and environmentally conscious methods. Making good products enables them to do good work. Every time we order something from Holy Lamb Organics, we're proud to support a small town made in America company. You can find Holy Lamb Organics in the Lady Farmer Marketplace. For additional marketplace discounts, you can join the Almanac, our member-supported community platform. Find Holy Lamb Organics products including pillows, sheets, natural wool comforters, and more in the bedding section of the Lady Farmer Marketplace at www.ladyfarmer.com. So that group of people... In 2017, we made a decision that we were going to buy land together to create a permanent base, both to do these encounters, but also just to have more land stability. Just going back to Three Part Harmony Farm, I don't own that property. And someday it's inevitable. I will not even have a lease to farm on that property. That's just the way that land access goes in a city, especially one with gentrification as violent as in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. So I just signed my new lease last week for two years. So I'm constantly in a cycle of having to fight to have access to that soil that I built. Yeah. Is that increasingly challenging every time your lease comes up? Do you have to make a new case for it or how does that go? In some ways, it's gotten easier because... The framework has been laid, so we're just signing the same thing again. But 40 new townhouses just went up across the street from the farm, and they went on sale Saturday for $850,000 each. Wow. And so it's just a matter of time, right? Like when I started in 2011, the land was assessed at $5.2 million, and now it's more like thirteen. My wow. Gosh. But if a developer wanted to come and offer 15 million so that they could build 60 townhouses on the two acres, how could the priests say no to that? That's yes. a lot of money. So the so black dirt, yeah. So we we started paying dues into a bank account for several years and then tried to find land to buy. And just recently in April of 2021, I think. We bought 24 and a half acres of land mm. together in Brandywine. 
Okay, so that's when going back to the beginning, you said you also farm in Brandywine. So is that yeah. also three pH is like on this land as well? So the Black Dirt Farm Collective owns land on Croom Road in Brandywine. And two miles down the road, three part harmony farm leases cropland. So I'm very curious about your CSA clientele there yeah. in DC at three part harmony farm. And you say the area has been increasingly gentrified since you've been there. Yeah. I'm curious about as people come in, where are they getting their food? And is there any mm-hmm. sense of, are they building like super fancy grocery stores in the area that people that have been there a long time can't afford? In what sense is your neighborhood a food desert or not? Mm-hmm. And what part is three-part Harmony Farm actually doing in, in, in feeding the neighborhood? Is your clientele from right there or is it from all over the city? Yeah, these are all really good questions. The farm feeds my household and my community first. And from Mm -hmm. the beginning, it was always like this. In 2012, I only had six CSA members and they picked up vegetables on my front porch. And it was three or four years before I had a CSA member who I had to introduce myself to. So I built the core of my customer base around my strength of having those decades of relationships built in DC. And then the word of mouth of those relationships also. Mm-hmm. So it, it took a long time before I reached the growing capacity to be able to need to advertise to customers that I didn't know. Right. And then I think we built somewhat of a base of customers around the idea of people who wanted to support a local farm. It's quite unusual to be able to pick up a CSA box and have almost all of the items come from DC. Yeah. And especially that it's a Black-owned farm, that it's a woman-owned farm. People are really interested in all of those kinds of things. And so any like social media words are like drawing people to Three-Part Harmony Farm for all those reasons. People walk by the farm, like I said before, and they see the sign and they Google and they are like, oh, I can get vegetables from from the person across the street. And then I think because of my social justice background, whether or not working 80 hours a week affords me to continue to be able to show up at a protest march, <laughs> people know where my politics are and they want to support that too. So as a reflection of how the neighborhood has changed, one thing that has happened with gentrification in the city is even regular supermarkets, I'm not talking about Whole Foods or those kinds of places, just like the Safeways and the Giants, have all gotten huge facelifts in the last decade or so, thanks to the gentrification. So I moved to a neighborhood off of Georgia Avenue in Northwest DC in 2010. And when we moved into that neighborhood, the Safeway was still like grocery store with a big parking lot so mm-hmm. much real estate just for parking cars. You never see that now. And you walk inside and shelves are empty. And the place hasn't been changed since the 1960s. I couldn't buy soy milk there. It was like, I can't believe this is our neighborhood grocery store. But as the neighborhood changed, then that building got demolished. And now there's a new Safeway that has condos above it 
just two blocks south of where the old Safeway was. So that's the kind of grocery store changes that are happening in the rich parts of the city. I'm not talking about east of the river where they still don't have access to grocery stores, but that's what's happening within walking distance and bike ride distance around my farm. So people have a lot of options. There's a lot of farmer's markets. There's a lot more delivery services. The whole food system has changed since I got into farming. You can get organic produce at Walmart. So (laughs) people's options for getting better food is just a lot different than what it used to be. Now on the map, the ward that I'm in, Ward 5, is still a low income, limited, limit access population. If you walk from the farm north, east, west, just a little bit, you don't see that right away because I'm on the edge. But if you go further south, you do see that. I guess it it just depends on where you are around the farm. So would you say that your clientele is drawn to you because as you said, hey, this is hyper-local food from our neighborhood that's produced by a Black farmer, Black female farmer. Is that the draw? Or is it more of they're just drawn to fresh farm food rather than going to one of the fancy grocery stores? Or is your CSA more economically accessible than going to the grocery store. Where would you say you fit in locally in the food chain, in the food system? I think it's number two and number one. I think people who already were shopping, were buying fresh produce at a grocery store that frankly I can't afford (laughs) or shopping at a farmer's market, which also I couldn't afford to shop at a farmer's market all the time. That income level are the kind of people who are looking at the marketplace and seeing very comparable CSA options and they're gravitating towards one that stands out because it's across the street from their school or it's owned by a black woman. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, and then also when they experience it, I have a high retention rate. People are opening up their box and being like, Oh my God, this kale is so fresh. It's yeah. Cause I picked it for you this morning, and then I dropped it off on your neighbor's porch tonight. So that leads me to what we have this conversation on this podcast all the time, but I'm just interested in your perspective. What do we do about that? What do we do about the fact that there are people who, and it's my belief that everyone needs access to good food, and there are people who don't have that, can't afford it, can't afford the your fresh, beautiful kale delivered on their neighbor's porch. How do we get this to them? How do we, what are the ways that we can circumvent this really twisted, complicated system that is in favor of big corporations and not the people? I always like to start off answering this question with a reminder that it's not my job to answer that question. (laughs) But it's our job to talk about it. (laughs) Yeah, but I just think it's a little bit, it's not fair. Other people messed up the food system Lots of rich people are benefiting from the food system the way that it is. Farmers already, we're in our own low-income bracket. And now you're asking me to make sure that all my neighbors can eat well. Yeah. But because I care and (laughs) 
I want to maximize as much as I can, making sure that the vegetables that I lovingly grow are distributed in my neighborhood. I guess I go back to like my activism and grassroots core. If I want the farm to be a vehicle for making sure that the food is being distributed equitably across income strata, I have to ask my community for support. So one of the things that we do is like when the 100 CSA members sign up every year, which is happening right now, I give everybody an option in the little form that they fill out to make an extra donation. And this surprised me. We started doing it in 2020. And at first I thought there's no way that my customers are going to be able to contribute any significant amount of money all of the people who get my CSA boxes make the same amount of money as I do. I just Mm -hmm. was sure that was true. And it turned out that either because no matter how much they make, they're just also as generous as I want to be, or because they do make more than I realized (laughs) it was the easiest money I ever made. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. And so now every year we give out 10 free boxes. That's awesome. That's amazing. That's like the stone soup story. If you're familiar with that, like everybody yeah. just put in a little something and guess what? You, you yeah, know. that's basically three-part Harmony Farm. That's the idea of the name. <laughs> oh, I oh, love that. Let's go to that. that question. Tell us and, about and that. And also the logo. So yeah. Yeah, that my dad doesn't remember this or he says he doesn't remember, but three-part harmony is like something that I remember him saying when I was a kid growing up. It's a group of people who get together to do something that they haven't done before. They don't know each other, but they have to sing happy birthday. And you don't know how it's going to turn out because you don't know each other and you haven't practiced. But as soon as somebody counts to three, everybody just starts singing their part. And you didn't know it, but you've got three parts of harmony because everybody's just singing their part. And that, so that was the, my idea behind the name is everybody is just coming here. We're this ragtag group of people. Everybody comes with whatever their part is and it becomes this harmonious thing. Oh, that's beautiful. So yeah, that's like all of my CSA members giving their $25 extra when they sign up. Yeah. That's wonderful. And what about the, the butterfly? The butterfly logo is symbol, I guess, of like migration which is a nod towards the Great Migration, which a lot of Black families in the United States have a connection to, as I do too. My my grandfather was part of the Great Migration. But it also is a nod to the idea of just migration in, in general. It comes from more like immigrant rights images. And that, and I especially just appreciate the idea of the butterfly, the monarch butterfly specifically, migrating across borders. Like in in our economy, trucks move across borders, plastic tchotchkes move across borders, but people can't move across borders. It's the most absurd thing that I've ever heard. And so the reminder of just like the butterfly going from the Mexico to the United States to Canada and back across generations. For me, it's an important reminder of that movement of everything. But then also the butterfly is a testament to our need to create habitat. Yes. I think when people look at the butterfly, they think, oh, I need to make this plant my little milkweed and make a little like habitat pollinator garden so that I can make a homey place for this butterfly. And I also, I think that making a farm is the same way for humans 
mm-hmm. for good bugs, <laughs> for all the animals, except for the groundhog who showed up at my farm last week. Yeah. So it's just like, that was a more long-winded way than I think I usually answer, but it's that idea of like humans migrating, but then also of creating habitat. I love That's that. Amazing. And- I'm glad you took the long-winded way. That's so cool. Yes, and also the the idea that that these boundaries are an illusion. Like the monarch butterfly has no sense of crossing down into the Mexico for the winter. They're just going. And so, yeah, what are boundaries? What are these geographical boundaries that we... A line on a piece of paper. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be different in 100 years. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, I'm so fascinated by that topic. Anyway, that's a rabbit hole. (laughs) Before we start winding up, I want to ask you about what are the sustainable and regenerative practices that you employ there in your farming at Three Part Harmony Farm? Yeah, so we finally, a couple of years ago, graduated to a mostly no-till system after many years of doing the traditional tillage to prepare a soil for the bed for planting and then direct seeding or transplanting. And then again, using the tillage method to get everything out. I built up the soil to a level where it's possible now that we can just do everything with some rakes and scuffle hoe, a little bit of silage tarp, unfortunately, but, but not any tillage. So we, I mostly focus on just building the soil Mm-hmm. which we do by adding a lot of compost still. Right about this time of year in the springtime, we add a little bit of compost to almost every one of the 64 beds that we have and hand work it in usually with a broad fork. And then by the time I get through planting the spring crops, it's really easy just to keep transitioning them through. We have not been as successful in using cover crops, which is something that I transferred with me from the larger acreage, but which is very difficult to do on a small scale Mm -hmm. and with such high rotation. So every single one of our beds gets at least three cash crops every year. And by the time I finish in November, it's too late to plant winter cover crops. And there's not really much time in the other times of the year between to do anything except for sometimes quick buckwheat. So the new thing that I've been doing the last few years is just covering everything in straw, like Mm -hmm. ungodly amounts of straw that get trucked in from Maryland twice a year. So if you came to the farm now, you would see two thirds of the beds just covered in straw to protect them. And then I'll rake it in another month or so, and we'll start seeding in the spring. Thankfully, now we're to a point where I don't really use fertility. I don't add fertilizer to the beds. I just rely on the soil itself and then the compost. And then, yeah, I don't know. It's not, I guess I couldn't really write a book, but everything is just in balance. We have flowers that seem to be enough. There's a lot of active pollinators and also seems like the insect population is in balance. The first few years I needed to spray OMRI approved pesticides, but I don't anymore. It's wonderful. It's hard to narrow it down. We just have an ecosystem that is working for us. 
That's so encouraging. And we want people to know that you can do that on a smaller piece of land. You can create a self-sustaining ecology that doesn't require tons of chemicals or even just once you get it established, like you were saying about you got the soil built up and healthy. So it sustains itself, doesn't it? With the crop, the crop rotation and the covering it with straw. And so this is how we do it. (laughs) Yeah. I learned, I learned the hard way. It took me uh, maybe three or four years too many, (laughs) but finally it just hit me one time around the summer solstice. I have to have everything covered. It is just hot as hell in the city. Mm -hmm. And if I have any bare soil, by the time we get to that point in the year, all of the work that we did goes away in a week and the soil just reverts it back to that soccer field. Yeah. Very easily. Speaking of we, how many, tell us about your team. Do you have people working for you? What's that like? As of May of last year, I have an additional full-time person who does a lot of work at the DC farm and especially a lot of building. We've done a lot of infrastructure improvements in the last two years, and he's been in charge of putting together two walk-in coolers, three tunnels, and I'm sure I'm missing something else. But then he also is managing the site in Brandywine, which is where we will have chickens in another about three more weeks. We'll have some layers and some broilers out there. And then I have two part-time staff who work from March to November, mostly helping with harvesting. But then we do a little bit of field work too when the morning harvest is done. And then starting last September, I have two grant-funded apprentices who also work full-time. We do have about 12 work shares, people who do three hours of work in exchange for a CSA share. That's how I got started. And I think it's important for people to have that access to be able to come with zero skills and learn how to weed and then move up from there and exchange their labor for goods. I think it's a very important part of our economy. It's CSA sign-up season now. And I was going to ask you, are you in a position to grow out into the wider D.C. area or do you want to keep it contained to your neighborhood and serve your local people? I want to be a neighborhood farm. I also don't check people's IDs at the door. There are a handful of people who drive incredible distances to buy vegetables from a Black woman. And I am always every week just in awe of that. So that's amazing. But yeah, I feel like I wake up every morning and exist to make sure that everybody on my block is healthy. We're limited by space and how much I can grow. Like, yeah, it's a two acre property, but we only have a half an acre of cultivated vegetables because we're not like growing right up to the chain link fence. So yeah, I I maxed out three years ago. We hit a hundred members in the CSA and we've stayed steady a hundred since then. We deliver boxes to two porches on Tuesdays. And then I do a market style pickup at a hardware store on Saturdays. I'm not allowed to do any on-site farm stand. Wow, you guys get so much done. But so, yeah, so I would definitely like to expand. I -hmm. think financially speaking, that's like the sustainable thing. I just, last year was the first year that I only farmed. So all of the preceding years, I I relied on off-farm income. 
So you are a self-sustaining farmer right now. Yeah. So I need to keep that going before I only had tears on the pillow trying to figure out how I was going to pay my staff, but now I need to pay myself too. So yeah, that's the idea of growing, expanding into brandy wine is to be able to have more row crops. So this year, before we send a whole bunch of people listening to this podcast, rushing to three-part harmony farm to become a part of your CSA, are you taking a lot of members? Yeah. Yeah. There's a wait list. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. That's a great problem to have. Yeah. Obviously, you're so passionate and grounded in it all. It's really been so fun to talk to you here on the Good Dirt Podcast. We like to talk about slow living and how that's connected with sustainable living. And we always ask each of our guests, what does slow living mean to you? I don't know what that means. (laughs) You're like, doesn't exist. (laughs) I thought it before I started farming, I thought the problem was my career path and I switched careers and I think it's just me. (laughs) (laughs) I think I have a hard time sitting down, but I did have a very slow January, which involved a lot of sleeping in and yoga class every day. My favorite luxury of every day is just drinking coffee and reading the actual Washington Post. Oh, like, like I'm, not, novel. Oh. I'm not really into reading news on a computer. I'm actually a Luddite, which also I thought was a good quality to have in a farmer. Oh, yes. But yeah, I, my my upstairs neighbors recently started giving me their day old newspapers. So now I feel like I'm living it up. <laughs> That's living wonderful. Living into your true I, self. I believe (laughs) you're the first person to say slow living is reading a paper newspaper. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's wonderful. Love the variety of (laughs) answers we get for that. I also think that farming and being connected to the land is like the epitome of slow. Yeah, it depends, right? Yeah. Running a business is quite a lot of work. Yes. But also on a Friday night when I'm by myself and I can lock myself inside those gates... I'll stay until just after the sun goes down. And that's the slowest three hours of anybody's week that you can have. And isn't that glorious? Oh my gosh, that sounds heavenly. And the thing about farming and working the land and working with crops and growing seasons is that it is slow. Something If something doesn't work out this growing season, you got to wait a year and try it again. <laughs> and that's pretty slow. <laughs> <laughs> You can't just order another one on Amazon in two days. <laughs> so what does the good dirt mean to you? And of course, he's a farmer. That might seem very obvious, but it's something we ask all our guests and we like to give everybody an opportunity to speak on that in any way they want. Yeah, the good dirt, I would say that's what we have. When you pick it up in your hand, you can smell it, you can taste it, you can close your eyes and feel that it's alive, Mm -hmm. you know that you have fed it and it will feed you. It's just good. It's hot. You know, when something is good, you can see it. Mm. And certainly it's like black gold, like any great compost pile. The good dirt is the darkest dirt. Gail, this has been so fun. Is there anything else you would like to leave with our audience or that you want people to understand about the work that you're doing? I guess I would just say like, people ask me a lot of questions all the time about all the things that you ask me about. And 
Yeah. I'm just a vegetable farmer. Yeah. (laughs) No, at the end of the day, I grow soil. I grow vegetables. I feed people. That's 80 hours of my every week. Yeah. There's not really that much time for anything else. That's amazing. That's restorative work. That's regeneration right there. Yeah. Building the soil, building the good dirt. What more can a person do in these times? Not much. Yeah. I tried to get out of politics, but there's nothing more political than access to land and water and food. And there's nothing more political than taking care of your own plot of earth either and taking care of it in a real restorative way. And taking care of each other and what that means and who gets taken care of. If everybody did that and took care of the earth and grew food where they could and took care of each other, if everybody did that, then the whole world would be taken care of. Then I wouldn't have any customers, though. I'm okay if some people just want to still buy from me. (laughs) There you go. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today, Gail. We just enjoyed this conversation very much. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) You made it so easy. Thank you. Oh, awesome. Okay. We'll see you around. Okay. Enjoy the rest of your day. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in, calling in, and spreading the good dirt. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our show notes and in the link in our Instagram profile. This show is produced by Lady Farmer with original music composed and performed by John Kingsley. Our technical partner for this series is Citizen Racecar. Post-production by Alex Brower and Jose Miguel Baez. Coordinated by Gabriela Montequim. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at We Are Lady Farmer. That's We Are Lady Farmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt.